1: It's hot. Uh, it's real hot. I'm not wearing a shirt right now as we podcast because it's so fucking hot. Uh, as you enjoy the
2: podcast, envision Jake without his shirt. I'm melting. Into the mic. A guy had to come over.
1: The AC in this loft is like the thing carrying the entire situation. And it blew up. And I had to... So, call the company that has the warranty on it and then I had to send a guy over and the guy came over to like do a diagnostic on it. This is all boring, I know, but the funny part is that he looked at Murray and he went oh, is she pregnant? (laughs) 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 He misgendered Murray. Yeah, and miss a lot of things, because Murray's not pregnant. He's just...
2: miss pregnant and (laughs) Murray. Insulted Uh, Murray. Who's not that fat? (laughs) Who's not a fat cat as far as cats go? He's a little fat. He's got a healthy appetite. He's got more cushion for the pushing, and by pushing, I mean (laughs) pushing a toy on the floor that he chases.
1: You're not talking about fucking my cat?
2: And I am not talking about having sex with Murray, the cat
1: that's good to know hello everyone <laughs> welcome to the show Poddam america pda the p stands for pushing because there's more pushing for your ear f- phones into for your, your ear cushion. earbuds yeah. into your ears
2: your ear cushion
1: uh-huh hello welcome to the show uh oh, oh we got a good episode for you this week and it's a scorcher. I'm sorry, I can't stop talking about the heat because I'm like actively I'm, melting.
2: We should be changing the name of the show to Hot Damn America. <laughs> hot <laughs> Damn. That's how hot it is. Hot Damn. Yeah. Hot Damn America. That is also something I find myself saying a lot as we recount the news in this wild country. <laughs> hot Damn America. Hot Damn. Doesn't that connote something Another positive? mass shooting? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that does sound like you're like, um, Damn America. Wait, didn't somebody have a joke about that? Damn, America!
3: You looking good. Um, uh, I know Bernie Mac would always refer to the audience as America. Like America? Parallel
2: Which? thinking. Bernie uh, Mac okay. and I are parallel thinking.
1: I'm smoking a huge cigar right now while I
3: talk to you guys, like Bernie That's Mac. Right? He doesn't even need to light it; he just holds it up, and it, you know, sparks.
2: Just slowly <laughs> taking cancer into his face at all <laughs> times.
1: Yep. I'm shirtless and smoking a cigar. Why is it so hot? Oh, what's going on I in the world?
2: I, I'm impressed we have like recorded most of a podcast already because I have no will to go on anymore. <laughs> Continue things. I said this off off mic, but I like went to go lie down yesterday and then just passed out for two hours and woke up late late in the day. Like, boo!
1: You can't go in the water because there's sharks now. It's just part of the news. We're stuck.
2: This country's goddamn changing. There's sharks in Long Island.
3: In Long Island, where
2: am I at NYU Business School?
3: All these (laughs) New York sharks. (laughs) Come on, does that have anything to do with the heat? The the sharks coming nearer nearer to uh, the shore.
2: Yes, it's it's climate change. Although it's not like like the ocean temperatures, like. Is like it works different than the land temperature. Okay, and that's all I'm willing to say about that at this time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Are they like, <laughs> Is it too hot in
1: the water? So they're like, I get gotta get out of the damn water. Is that what's going on with them? They want to come. Well, up?
2: no, because normally they hang out in like Florida, and they eat uh Jimmy Buffett guys, oh. and and a, a manatee that gets lost and yeah. stuff like that. But now because it's Surf Town, USA, New York City. Kind of a new approach on where to go. Go eat a go eat a coastal elite. Why don't you see if you can taste the latte in their blood?
1: Yeah, except uh, they went to Long Island, so they're gonna get a Long right. Island blowhard guy.
2: The sharks <laughs> die immediately afterwards. Assuming
1: <laughs> they eat Billy Joel and they get drunk because he's full of white wine. <laughs>
3: Apparently, they did attack a teen in Long Island. I was wondering, like, well, when are the shark attacks going to happen? Not that I'm, you know, excited for that. But Anders is
2: not excited.
3: It was like a bear trap, recounts Long Island teen. So somebody made it out alive.
2: It was like getting bitten by a shark, says teen, who was bit by a
3: shark. Right. It would be bad if more people are bit by sharks, possibly killed. But it would be kind of a break from all the other bad news about, you know, even the weather and all the bad stuff humans are doing to just have a little little uh, respite from that and hear about sharks.
2: Yeah. Pit us back against nature for five seconds. Although the sharks versus humans battle very one sided. We we round up like five million sharks a year or something. There's like three bites. This sounds Um, actually pretty
3: terrifying. So he's a surfer, teen surfer dude. And he's, uh, you know, paddling around with his friend. And he's like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I got bit by a shark? And then he was. The shark oh. heard his ass. Yeah. <laughs>
2: talking out of school.
3: Well, he, he probably misheard it. The shark misheard it and was like, oh, they they want that. Okay. It's, it's he so must copacetic. want
2: me to bite. And that's toxic masculinity in sharks. <laughs> right. so assume you're life. entitled to eat a teen. Friend. Oh. <laughs> you want uh, me bite you So I'm on a website I'm on NBC New York and it says the teen Thing this week was yeah. the fifth Attack on Long Island this summer So sharks be oh up God. in New York
1: Attack Damn. on Tight Ty- Ta- Long Island
2: the Attack on Long Island
3: Yeah okay. I'm surprised that's they haven't rebooted the Show everyone. I'm surprised <laughs> they haven't rebooted Jaws Which is an gr- excellent summer film
2: That's a good point uh,
3: Yeah I mean, maybe it's because they made seven sequels, which all of which I watched as a kid. None of them holds up, but I guess they, they uh, f- feel like that franchise has um, jumped something. I I'm, I can't put my, my finger on what it's jumped, but mm. it's, it's maybe over. Yeah. It's jumped a dolphin. Um, they don't think they can crank any more out, but I would, I, I would say I would watch, I'm sure like they would put Chris Pratt in it or something. Yeah. It's like a shark blower-upper. Oh,
2: we could yeah, see that. The, the shark's looking for adorkable men.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the conversation I've seen about the, the uh, shark patrols in New York is that... Uh, so the the governor, in response to, to the uh, attacks, has stepped up patrols. She said, I want a goddamn shark on my desk by five. And so now <laughs> helicopters are patrolling the beach left and right because the police are in charge of shark attacks.
1: Yeah. It's like Shit.
2: there's no separate department. There's just like cops in a helicopter like looking down, like ready to like light up a fish. The Chris Pratt <laughs> movie
1: about this would be called Zero Shark Thirty.
2: <laughs> that is exactly what it would be called, and it's more important than ever to say it.
3: <laughs> now more than ever. Zero now, Shark Thirty. This could be a campaign issue because Hokel's up for reelection. Uh she's running against a moderate Republican. They agree on everything. I've been saying, you know, and I'm sorry if I've said My this opponent. before, but
2: Supports sharks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: 1916.
2: Long Islanders.
3: That was a major issue in that year's presidential election was the shark attacks off of New Jersey. So uh, this could, yeah, it would be a much more interesting race than whatever the hell else they're going to debate about.
2: They're going to fight about the name of a bridge for <laughs> six hours, and <laughs> then we're all going to Pokemon go to the polls. Right. Um,
1: he's around. And he's feeling up the sharks. I'm losing my yeah. mind from the heat. Don't don't <laughs> listen to anything I'm saying.
2: Speaking of Andrew sharks. Andrew Cuomo talking, talking to the sharks. You have beautiful
3: fish. You know that? <laughs> he's going to. Oh, that's going to be the so Jaws Florida. reboot. To win back the favor of the people of New York, Andrew Cuomo will personally exterminate the sharks. Oh, he's like the mayor guy in Jaws. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, no, he's, the mayor is in denial. He's, he's going to be like um, the cop. The mayor is a coward.
2: He's hiding from the sharks.
3: <laughs> yeah. He's gonna go out in a boat. <clears throat> the I'm sure he has some stupid yacht, and maybe die. Surprised
2: he's not a surfer guy, honestly. Cuomo? No, no. Um, Adams.
3: Uh, well, you know, he did um, go jet skiing recently in the Bronx, which you can do.
2: I guess yeah, it takes a while to become good at surfing.
3: Yeah, I, yeah, I, I was like, gonna say, I, I is that I bet Cuomo is not a surfer because he has pierced nipples. I don't.
1: That doesn't make sense. I,
3: I, I don't want to get into it, but <laughs> it, there is some logic there that I, it's very gruesome. Um, But anyway, speaking of political sharks, oh, speaking of political sharks, this ne- this guy who I'm going to bring up, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, looks like a shark. He looks really? like kind of a human shark. Yeah, a human uh, shark. Yes. Um, And I'm talking about, of course, obviously, the now Republican nominee for Attorney General in Maryland, Michael Perutka.
2: Michael. I'm still not sure what
3: kind of name that last name is. How do you spell um, Perutka? P-E-R-O-U-T-K-A. Um and this guy, so I have some familiarity with this with this guy, actually. I've been I've known about him for a long time. Uh he's a lunatic. But I I first heard about him in two thousand four because I was watching this documentary about third parties on PBS and he was the Constitution Party nominee for president in two thousand four, running against Bush, (coughs) saying Bush is not hard right enough on on immigration, for instance. He was he was actually against the war. Uh was and and even back then as like a thirteen year old, I was like, Wow, this guy is nuts. Um Can I just hop in to say, uh, upon
2: Google image search, there's a minor similarity to a shark. And Anders is correct. But not so much as you'd look at him and think, that guy's a shark. But like, if there was a movie made about him, a shark would be an acceptable animal replacement.
3: If you tilt a shark upwards and have it stand like a human... Which that you shouldn't do.
2: He has the wide neck.
3: Yeah, the face kind Ladies. of is
2: similar.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't be my first animal I'd go to with this guy if I was making.
3: Ladies, what animal would you say? If I was make,
1: yeah. making a Pixar film, this guy is maybe like a racist owl. <laughs> oh,
2: <laughs> Minerva. Oh yeah. Uh,
1: or like you, a worm. You I don't think you
2: can eat at his restaurant and he's in front of you and he turns his head all the way around and he. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not important what he says after he turns his head around, but something an owl might say, maybe hoot, 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 hoot. hoot so he is trying to eat in my hoot.
3: restaurant. He is hooting and hollering about the Constitution, which he thinks is God's law, um, and he's a very specific type of of guy. That uh, you don't see a lot of, but I feel like I've encountered this guy from living in DC for a couple of years, uh, Maryland Republicans, which is not a lot of them, but of the ones who do exist. Sure, there are moderates, there's a lot of moderates, but there's also this like far right strain of like suburban lawyers who like Pap Buchanan, kind of who like they're they live in, you know, this nice suburban home and the where, but they also believe all this just incredibly horrific uh, race science and anti-gay uh views and stuff and they're like obsessed with the founding fathers um he, he he's an originalist which is you know it sounds crazy when you when you hear someone talking about it but it's actually pretty close to what you know most members of the supreme court believe um that like we have to abide uh letter by letter by the constitution of the united states which was written you know hundreds of years a ago a
2: national treasure style politician
3: yeah Um, But one thing where he does buck, I guess, United States tradition is he's from Maryland, but he's very upset. He says he's still mad at the fact that Maryland was not able to secede from the Union during the Civil War.
2: Don't know too many people mad about that.
3: (laughs) Still (laughs) mad. Still mad. It's weird because he's from Let Maryland. He's Maryland bred, but there's this very specific type of Maryland guy who is like obsessed with the Confederacy and uh, considers. You're
2: this like it happened during his lifetime. I know <laughs> is it's a like, hundred and sixty years ago.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't know what makes them like that, but the, he, he's just, and he's not even from the South. He gets offended if you say. That uh, Maryland's in northern state is like it's below Mason Dixon. Um, okay. and he, he there's a video of him that's been circulating, where he says, or uh, he's speaking at a convention of League of the South, which is a fascist uh, neo Confederate uh, group, and he has a guitar in his hand and he's like, everyone, please rise for the national anthem, <laughs> and, then, and then he starts playing Dixie. So he does a little ironic joke. Yeah, does a little ironic joke. He's still loyal to to Jefferson Davis. I feel Uh, very
2: split about um, that song because although it is the uh, theme song of a racist uh, dead empire, it is objectively a better song than the national anthem. mm. And it's kind of an earworm.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's stuck in my head now from watching him play that video. You can't, yeah, that's right. You can't really play the National Anthem on acoustic, at least have it sound very fun. That's a
1: it's ballsy bouncy move and fun. In general, to ha- be holding a guitar and be like, please rise for the National Anthem. That's right. I'm playing it. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy <laughs> batshit shit to begin with.
2: Byung, yeah. Byung, 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 byung. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. Yeah. That would suck ass. I mean, it's it,
1: the only the implication is that he's about to sit there and do like Hendrix shit, which he's All not right. going to. <laughs> yeah.
3: It would be one thing if it was electric, but yeah, acoustic is... Um, it be
2: one thing if it was electric. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but this guy is now the uh, nominee. Somehow he squeaked in there. I actually was elected or was nominated with a pretty uh, healthy percentage of the vote. He was a like a county councilman in Anne Arundel County for a long time, uh, for a few years, and they got primaried out because he's like... A, he's a bigot. He's a fascist. He's just Totally um, office rocker and has been kind of leeching himself to different uh, movements for the past like couple decades and has finally determined that the most effective thing to do is just to run as a Republican. And that's what a lot of these guys have been doing, especially after Trump. Uh, so now we're at a stage where it probably is not going to win in Maryland. Um, that would be that is a terrifying prospect, though, uh, that this guy could be in charge of any, any like, state or uh, local or any sort of um, judicial arm of a government. Well,
2: he's it's, running for attorney general, right? That's not like yeah. a low position.
3: No, yeah, he. I mean, he's gonna mandate shit. He's gonna like sue the schools and make them teach like creationism and he's gonna like,
2: change the national anthem.
3: Yeah. I mean, hey, he wants to restart the Civil War. Uh, at least he was associated with a group that did. Yeah, this um,
2: time uh, Maryland will be the only state that secedes. Yeah. So they can get on <laughs> the bottom floor of it.
1: Versus everyone else. That's the real. Maryland game. versus
2: the new Ohio.
3: It's just going to be like guys like him in suits and ties, him and like Alan Keyes, uh, who's not even white, but is still just a Christian nationalist. Maniac. Wow. Um, who's also a Maryland lawyer from the suburbs who has all these just l- lunatic far right views. Um Dream
2: one yeah. circle. Right.
1: <laughs> I figured it out. He looks like an angry bird, like the big, oh, head, small face kind of thing,
2: like yeah. the red one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The iconic red angry bird.
1: He's angry too. It makes sense. What
2: is he angry about? You ask.
1: <laughs> uh, the loss of the
2: Confederacy in the Civil War.
1: <laughs> his white children.
2: <laughs> hey, that's true. used <laughs> to secure a future for them. Yeah. Right. So it's okay. You can throw him into bricks or whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. Um. Okay. That guy. Well, yeah. a, there's a guy. That guy sucks. He takes, uh, public education's of communist plot. Um, laws for that protect abortion and gay marriage are illegal. These <laughs> are very God's old law.
2: political issues. Public yeah. education.
3: <laughs> yeah, what is it? Huh? Is he like 100 years old or is he just a throwback? He's just we angry We our about- children
2: in the mines.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Yeah, he, he thinks American leaders must take a biblical worldview and apply it to civil law and government. But anyway, this. I don't think we should get
1: involved in this World War One I keep hearing about (laughs) because it wasn't called that at the time. But still, what the fuck?
3: But yeah, so the establishment Maryland Republican Party has been trying to like dodge this bullet and uh, beat him back, but they have have failed, and he is now the standard bearer for it's it's you know not all that dissimilar from uh, David Duke in the early nineties in Louisiana getting a Republican nomination and they were all and like the, you know, business wing of the party was like, what the fuck? Um, but like, yeah, so he's, he's probably not going to win. Um, still too close for comfort, but there are a lot of states where people like this are winning are Republican states where this could happen. Um, and you could actually have a, just, and you probably already do have, um you know absolute far-right fascists at uh these these important positions um as we've talked about on the show before secretaries of state around the country uh they've mostly been groomed by like um what's that uh um conservative Alec <coughs> Alec you know so they go with with business whatever business wants to do they're there but then on like election fraud they've Decided that you know maybe the election wasn't stolen, and uh, that's probably not good for business in this state if we if we accept uh, the Trump lie. Um, but that could change too. Uh, Peru, this is you know again Maryland, solid blue state. This guy wins the Republican nomination. What's to stop that from happening in you know Georgia or Texas or Florida or like a lot of other more conservative states? So it is. Definitely a, a disturbing trend.
2: Shark to watch of the yeah. week. Oh, yeah.
3: yeah. he's
1: an angry shark. Um, Should we talk about this Quidditch thing before we get into this? Let's sure. very quickly touch on what's happening in the very important world of all the uh, alternative sports. I don't even know what you would call this. The Quidditch people... The people that play quidditch in real life have um decided to change the name of the sport to dissociate it from the transphobic horrible demon person jk rowling who uh you know made harry potter shit um
2: what what do you think about this I, i well so
1: what i'm interested in is apparently there's like a this has been going on for a while Uh, somebody decided to try to create the fictional game that is in Harry Potter, which is one of the dumber parts of the books. I know that they're extremely stupid, but even in my opinion as a, uh, you know, uh, I separate the art from the artist person here. Art from the artist. um, (laughs) Like, pretty stupid. Uh, I don't know why this lady thought she could write about, you know, sports in a compelling way. It's just dumb, right? Uh, So the way they play the game apparently is that you just carry like a fucking stick in between your legs It's just rammed you up run your with the stick to because you're
2: supposed to be flying to, yeah.
1: to recreate that you're on a broom and i think it's pretty stupid um however i do agree with their move to dissociate from jk Rowling, so i have to hand it to him i suppose but uh i just this got me thinking uh A long time ago, I heard about people playing this on bikes, and I thought that was actually kind of cool, because bike culture is fun, and, like, used to be you would hear about people, like, jousting on tall bikes and shit like that during uh, bike fests and stuff, getting extremely injured, but, you know, it's all part of the game, Um, and to me, I'm just like, why not do it on bikes? It makes way more sense. These people seem to be the nerdier of the bunch, and yet they've made the, uh, politically, uh, you know, uh, what, uh what, do, what do you call it? The good, it's a good move, Like you have to respect it. So, um, I'm conflicted. Way to go, nerds. <laughs> good job.
2: I, I don't know. Play, a, play any other game.
1: It sucks. I can't imagine. You're not
2: really flying. It's dangerous to have a <laughs> stick down there.
3: Imagination. It's a power. Uh, Imagination. of the stick. Uh, I, I actually have kind of a funny story about this game um, because when I was at RT, where the editors worked, there was a TV that would play like you know had a bunch of different channels, and one of them was like ESPN three or ESPN eight, the Ocho. I don't know which one, but uh, this game was on it. Was on the ESPN, um, you know. They made it to like ESPN 4 or whatever. Yeah. Broadball? Well, then it was called Quidditch and it was just looked ridiculous. And uh, I told one of the editors this, he's a Russian guy. I was like, they're playing Quidditch on TV. And he was like, I don't understand. How can you play that? There's a fictional game from Harry Potter. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. Cause the, uh, cause the flying. And he's like, well, yeah, but the, how do you recreate snitch? <laughs> he's, correct. He's, he's, he's correct. He's correct. it's weird. Cuz if and he even said I don't even like Harry Potter, but uh he as <laughs> as he explained you once you catch the snitch the game is over. That's it, kind of the whole point of the game. Everything else is kind of a distraction. And it's kind of completely pointless, actually. Yeah. Uh, because the whole the name of the game is catching the snitch. I don't think the game can even end until that happens, and then you have all these points, these points that are scored for no reason.
1: Well, what it is is that the catching the snitch is like a it ends the game, and B it's worth like a hundred points or something. So like, I you know, in theory you could rack up so many points that the opposing team catches the snitch and you still win, but it's like a crazy. Oh, thing. Okay. It would only happen like every once in a long time. It's yeah. stupid. It'd have to be a
2: squash. <laughs> 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 that would be, like, the most offensive thing you could do is get 150 points and then let the enemy team catch the stench.
1: It would be cool if that happened, I guess, but this is just dumb. Like, it's just dumb. Like, this This person writing this,
2: nah, they're, they're I don't know
1: where they're getting this. It's not how sports work. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you train your whole life to be a quaffer or whatever, knowing you're <laughs> completely meaningless?
3: Yeah, it well, looks how
2: like do you lacrosse, do the bludgers, basically. Andrews? How do you do the bludgers?
3: What's a bludger? Because like they're the
2: big balls that hit you and knock you off your broom.
3: Uh, I think you might have people on the sidelines th- throwing those. Actually, I would want that job. That sounds like fun.
1: That'd be cool. You get to pelt the nerds. You don't, yeah. You've never even read Harry Potter. You're just like, I'll do it.
3: Yeah. yeah. Let me hit them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but the snitch flies on its own. So maybe they'll invent a drone that's really small and has like, it's like a gold ball with wings. But until then, he's right. You can't really recreate Quidditch.
1: Imagine you're on top of one of those tall bikes. It's scary up there. You're trying <laughs> to catch a drone. It's ev- evasive and elusive, and it's only coming within your arm's reach just slightly. And if you, you reach too far for it, you might fall off your tall bike. This is a game with stakes, right? This makes yeah. sense. And maybe like
2: Quidditch. Right. Harry Potter's always breaking every bone in his goddamn body. I don't know if you remember, but... Oh. I, I'm not seeing that happen in the real snitch right now, which I assume is just a fast guy. It's like, it's and a, you get a slippery guy, <laughs> and he runs away from you.
1: Yeah, they grease up like a little Danny DeVito guy, and then you have to catch yeah. him. <laughs> He's, like, hard to get your arms around. That'd be cool. I don't know. Anyway, they changed the name to Quadball, and and uh, I don't know if this matters at all. I don't know why it's in the news. I just thought it was... Yeah,
3: why not just make it an actual sport at that point? No. All these people should be detained. And- well, but like, yeah, do do away with the brooms and think out some rules that make actual sense. Well, then you just. I making- would be
2: more in- invested if they were trying to recreate Blitzball from Final Fantasy X. There you go. In the giant water um, tube, where you don't breathe for an hour. I don't
1: Fair really enough. remember it, but yeah, that's cool. It's a much better fictional sport.
2: It would be tough. It'd be tough. You'd have to be you'd have to be diving certified to play, which really does. That's gonna make it a certain class of people is playing this game that's that's not publicly available. It's not quite basketball, but I think we can make it happen. Yeah.
1: Make chocobo racing real. Why not? Why yeah, not? Make
2: chocobo it. racing. Bomberman racing. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. The big rabbits.
1: <laughs> Mario Kart. Make it real. Alright, well, um, if I were a uh, chasing the snitch and someone <laughs> were trying to 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 bludgeon me with a quaffer, you know what I would do? I would fight like hell. Uh, which to? is the name of the book that the person we are interviewing today wrote. Fight like hell by Kim Kelly. It's a uh, a history of labor for the rest of us. Great book. I read it when uh, she put it out. Most of it. My AC blew up. Uh, And I wanted to talk to her on the show because she's cool and writes about labor. And I think that's perfect for us, right? Uh, That's what we're aiming for here. I know I said we're cool and then we just talked about Quidditch for 10 minutes, but trust me, we're cool. Let's get into the interview. (laughs) Okay, uh, I would like to open this interview with a little reading from the book we're talking about because this one particularly struck out to me as very cool and just fun. Uh,
2: Jake, I was hoping we could start with prayer.
1: Oh, right. Before uh, we get started, everyone, please. Done. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it's weird prayer. We pray to Moloch here. I don't know who that is. Okay. Um, no, no, no. no. Obviously, obviously, fuck that. Uh, so this this, cha- this passage really... I don't know. I guess it stuck out to me as like... It, sometimes history is a lot of fun, and that is helps get people motivated to read it. Check this out. Those valiant women became famous for their ferocious resolve on the line. One policeman can handle ten, Lawrence's district attorney griped, while it takes ten policemen to handle one woman. Journalist Mary Spacuza reported much uh, the same at the time. Here she wrote... A group, of en- a group of enraged Italian women happened upon a lone police officer on an icy bridge. After stripping him of his gun, club, and badge, they sliced the officer's suspenders and took <laughs> off his pants, a humiliation technique popular with the disorderly women of Lawrence, and dangled the officer oh. over a freezing river." And wouldn't I like to be dangled over a freezing river right now? <laughs> because it is yeah. very hot in my apartment. <laughs> uh, that's a, just a short snippet from the chapter in Kim Kelly's book, uh, the section on mill workers and the uh, women who began organizing and going on strike and stuff like that in Lawrence.
3: Anyway. and uh, Sorry, Lawrence, Kansas? Don't ask me Message. questions
1: about the thing I just pulled out of a random um, book. Answer that. <laughs> <laughs> don't answer that. For our guests can answer that. We'll I'm figure sorry. that out in a second. Welcome to the show. Kim <laughs> Kelly, labor journalist, labor columnist, author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, and Teen
0: Vote columnist. What's up? <laughs> Hi. It's hot in Philly, too. So, you know, it's not just a New York phenomenon. But uh, otherwise, I'm hanging out. I'm um, still kind of amazed and really, really happy that people still want to talk to me about this book now that it's been out for almost three months now. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. So I spent so much of my life in the music business, and I'm used to my friends putting out their records. And it's that same kind of boom and bust. Like, leading up, everyone's really excited. You're getting all this press, getting a lot of attention. Record comes out. Boom, you go on tour. After that, it's like, OK, well, like, what are you going to do now? And now I know what that feels like. And it is a weird feeling. So I guess uh, that, that is how I'm feeling today. I'm, I'm bringing you into my inner world right now. Sure. I have bet. There,
3: well, have I... there been any uh, mosh pits at your book signings yet?
0: Actually, uh, yeah. Um, wow. My well, So my... this is, <laughs> no, literally. So my, um, I did a couple of different book events, like book launch events in New York, like as you do, when the book came out in April and like the the publisher set up some some nice fancy things but I was like well but I want to do a show and basically I at the Bushwick Public House this little like basement yeah yeah, this basement (laughs) not from where I used to live in Brooklyn uh, I had a couple of my friends bands Sunrot and Trophy Hunt who are just like these like queer anti-fascist grindcore bands came they played and I did a little reading in the middle of it and we all got really wasted and there's a mosh pit and there's some pictures of me and the singer of Sunrod just like on the floor screaming and it was a really nice book event. So yeah, so yes. fun. <laughs> very on brand, I guess, even if a lot of people that know my work now don't know that I'm like a metal guy and have been for a really long time.
1: <laughs> that's cool. Um, yeah, I know Bush Republic public house. We do stuff there sometimes little cool basement space. Yeah. Um, Rex King put it on. Yeah, totally. Friend of the show. Um, yeah. Well, Speaking of music, I got your book while I was on tour opening for um, Grindcore band Eve Six. I can't even make that stretch work. Um, Alternative rock pop band Eve Six. Um, Also cool. Less mosh pits at the shows, though, uh, admittedly. Um, but I, I got it while I was on tour, so I was really busy. So that's also probably why this is happening. Maybe a few months after the fact. Plus, um, it's great. I'm a slow reader. I, I,
0: it's a it's a really thick book. I I turned in like forty thousand more words than they wanted, and they're like, no, like you can't. This isn't the internet. Like there's trees involved. You can't be doing all that. So <laughs> it, it could have been even longer. But I was I was reined in. I was censored yeah but really i just didn't i wrote too many words and they had to cut some out so it could have been worse up yours woke moralists we'll see who cancels who um stop
1: canceling canceling kim kelly uh (laughs) no i could see i mean i could see how you could keep going with it because you did kind of write a very ambitious uh just sort of like here's the rest of history that you didn't get told sort of thing and history is a long thing so let's talk about that um the premise of the book kind of seems to me to imply that and fairly correctly i would assume we can all agree hit labor history like all history is told uh with a white male straight patriarchal skew and it leaves a lot of other characters in uh in some of the famous labor movements on the cutting room floor and in the background, right? That's kind of what's going on here.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, and I always have to emphasize this because uh, so I, I don't operate in active the academic world. So whenever I talk like kind of these broad statements, about like, yeah, like no one's writing about these people. They got left out. They didn't get left out by the academics and historians who have studied them and preserved them. But that work is not necessarily accessible to just, you know, the random person on the street, who might walk into Barnes and Noble and be like, Oh, I guess I'll read about some labor stuff. Like that's not really, uh, it, it takes a lot of work to find the, that research and that those published pieces. So when it comes to mainstream Barnes and Noble, maybe you get assigned in school, maybe you come across it without putting that much effort in history. No one really knows about so many, like a lot of the people I covered in this book, I didn't know about them until they went looking for them. And it was a lot of fun trying to follow these breadcrumbs and go through all these academic texts and journals and newspaper articles and just all the, this volume of stuff that kind of exists everywhere, but hasn't been pulled into one little cohesive, easily accessible, I guess, book yet. And like that's what I tried to do. I wanted to make something that was fun and inclusive and not too intimidating. I know it's like a giant ass book, but (laughs) I didn't think it was going to be that big. I would just (laughs) left unsupervised for like a year, so that's what happened. But
1: I mean, it's it's uh, thick as in it's like long, but I, I, I never felt like lost reading it. I was, it's pretty straightforward what you're doing. It's like a yeah. series of profiles and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I tried to write it so people could pick it up on their lunch break or like on the bus and read it, read a few pages, be like, "Oh, that was cool," then go about their life, and then come back and skip around. Like I didn't want it, to, I didn't want it to feel like homework. I wanted it to feel like, yeah, fun. And labor history is really fun and interesting and kind of wild. And I wanted to. Bring that to people and show that to people who might not necessarily thought of it that way before.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, it also feels like you can pick it up and just open any chapter you want because each chapter is uh, about a different type of worker and it's uh you know it's not really like linear, linear or anything like that so like with that in mind is there, a, is there a particular area of labor that you feel like you learned a lot or that you found surprising information in in your research here?
0: Yeah there are two chapters that were actually the toughest because they're the most recent like I kind of lucked out in a Well, that's not a great, I don't know about lucked out, but when I was writing some of the earlier chapters about mill workers or even coal miners, uh, cleaners, like a lot of the people I was most interested in writing about were already dead. So I wasn't chasing them down for interviews, but when it came to these two chapters, uh, they're, uh, 11 and 13. Yeah, the uh, disabled workers chapter and the prisoners chapter. So much that history is so recent that I actually got to talk to a number of people who were involved in kind of some of the first waves of that that organizing those struggles. Um, the prison, uh, prison labor chapter, that was, I thought I knew a lot about it going into it. And then there was an offhand comment in a conversation with my friend, Victoria Law, who's also a brilliant journalist and uh, abolitionist author. She said, uh, yeah, there, she was, we we're talking about unions and labor and prison, and all those sorts of things. And she said, yeah, there's this, this Supreme Court thing in North Carolina in the 70s. I'm not really, I can't remember exactly what it is, but you should look into that. I was like, okay. And I looked into it and it kind of blew open this whole part of history where the, the Supreme Court basically took away incarcerated workers' right to be workers, to organize, to join unions. And that shaped a lot of the the, the rest of the way that chapter went and the way that, you know, incarcerated workers organizing has gone in this country. And then secondly, for the chapter on the intersection between the disability rights movement, and the labor movement, I didn't know very much about that going into it all. Mm-hmm. Even as a disabled person who's very into labor, I didn't know that much about the crossover between the two movements. And of course, the movements have always been kind of the same movement, like every other movement for progress and justice in this country. It's all been intertwined. There's this weird impulse to silo out these different groups, whether it's talking about, you know, the Black Power Movement or Women's Liberation, Queer Liberation, Labor Movement. A lot of the same people were doing the same things. It was the the same guys, the same people. And that was something when it came to the disabled workers chapter that was really fun to learn about. And um, my favorite Apart from that chapter is writing about Section 504 protests in the 70s, when there's this moment where a group of disabled activists predominantly led by queer women and black folks who took over a bunch of federal buildings across the country, most significantly in San Francisco, and they forced the government to give them what they wanted. They're able to keep that going because the Black Panthers fed them And uh, the machinist union provided them with transportation resources. It was this whole confluence of different identities and movements and goals. And it was all wrapped together in this one moment. And they won. And I thought that was a really nice lesson to take. You know, like when we all work together, shit happens.
1: Yeah, totally. There is kind of um, like a collectivist uh, (laughs) lesson to be learned here as opposed to like an individualist. Like I was thinking about that a lot when I was reading the farm workers chapter, because you have, uh, you know, this figurehead of Cesar Chavez at the, the helm of the thing or at the front of it, at least historically. And, um, I feel like I sensed a little bit of a critique of him, which I thought was interesting because, um, you know, you, I, he's just, he's like one of those guys that you think of because they're characterized as being like a leader that like, you know, caused all this stuff. But within labor, historically you do have like sort of, All this constant conflict between, uh, the people that become like labor aristocracy or whatever, and then like become part of maybe I'm misusing that word, but like, uh, then become, you know, part of like, you know, what the AFL and CIO and stuff are, which is then a compromised version of a labor movement or whatever. So like the untold stories of people that maybe even were like knocking on his door trying to get him to, uh, certify, you know, organizations that they were putting together and not getting them is kind of interesting um uh can you talk about that chapter a little bit the the farm workers and like the forgotten like women and stuff like that from the South
0: yeah I, I i you know cesar chavez is such a complicated figure i think i read a couple of biographies of him like he's he's a very well-documented person he has a very well-documented life which is exactly why i did not want to focus on him sure, yeah. and actually while i was doing research i i just kind of kept noticing how he sort of butted up against some of the other people I was interested in, like there are conflicts and disagreements. And of course, when you're trying to build and run a union, like there's going to be disagreements, but it it was just interesting seeing how in that specific context of like the case of Maria Marino, who was uh, one of the, like the first woman farm worker to be hired as an organizer in uh, the precursors they, I, uh, uh, Lila, the farm workers, um, she kind of got pushed out. She clashed with him because he thought she was a little too mouthy, a little too, maybe a little too powerful for a lady. And there's also Larry Itliong, a Filipino organizer who's incredibly effective, just a brilliant strategist and he could speak like nine languages. He was supposed to be kind of at a like a co-president uh, with Cesar Chavez of this earlier organization and they butted heads all the time. And he kind of, I think he kind of got frustrated and went a separate way after that too. So it's just, I, I wanted to make sure I spent more time talking about the people who you don't hear about as much, who don't have, you know, their own day or a bust in the president's office or whatever, because, you know, uh, even even venerable labor leaders are not, they're, they're still complicated humans and they're not perfect and their interpersonal relationships are complicated too and all that to say like you know no disrespect to Cesar Chavez obviously but I was so much more interested in hearing about everybody else around him who helped propel this movement forward and didn't get the kind of credit that he did that deserved just as much because of course he deserves that credit too
1: yeah totally yeah and I mean uh you know I like I don't know I guess I'm I'm just thinking a lot about like how history is written in this like kind of liberal way with great men and stuff like that and like uh, you know that's um, that's that's all fine there should be a Cesar Chavez street but there should also be a Lucy Parsons street I think oh my god should have her own city that'd be fucking (laughs) badass Uh
0: (laughs) there's a little there's a little itty bitty park in Chicago actually that's named for her I remember there's a few years ago that it got I don't know what everyone does to make a park be a park and there's a little bit of controversy because not everyone was that excited about you know, naming a public space after a radical black anarchist woman from the 1800s who advocated the use of dynamite—I can't imagine why she was dope. But um, <laughs> but yeah, Lucy Parsons has a little itty-bitty pocket park tucked away somewhere in Chicago, and other people have statues of themselves and you know busts in the Oval Office. It's just things aren't totally fair
1: yeah yeah it's weird chicago kind of has a little bit of that stuff in the in the culture of the
0: city but uh only there um yeah i love chicago chicago is such a cool place i'm so glad that labor notes was there it just felt it's just so nice to have that kind of event in that kind of city with that kind of history As like a labor nerd i just I just appreciated it that's a digression but shout out to chicago
1: sure yeah did you go there during uh, research for the book or?
0: Yeah, I didn't go nowhere. It was COVID. Oh, right. I wrote this Good. whole thing. It was mm-hmm. wild. When I was writing this book, when I, when I put together the proposal and I was making my little plans, I was like, I'm going to go to California and to Oregon and to Michigan. I'm going to go all over the place, go to all these archives, to all these in-person interviews. It's going to be great. And then I think I signed the contract for this, John, in like March, 2020. And it became very quickly apparent that my ass was not leaving South Philadelphia. So <laughs> I basically I was either calm doing book research or I was in Alabama covering first the Amazon organizing efforts in Bessemer and then and still the ongoing coal miner strike in Brookwood. So it was just Philly, the Philadelphia Library, every every bookstore in the world, the internet, phone, and the picket line in Alabama and that's how this book happened
1: oh right yeah totally I forgot you mentioned that in the book um but yeah so you eventually went down to best well can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background like how you became a labor maybe. journalist
0: oh yeah it's real weird uh, cool. <laughs> well maybe well I suppose it's really I think it's kind of the most typical well maybe not the most typical <laughs> story in the world And it doesn't, it makes sense to me, right? Like the short answer is, well, I helped organize my workplace and then I became more interested in labor and learned more about it and made more connections and decided this is what I wanted to do. And so I went and did it. And of course that leaves out a whole lot of things Mm -hmm. like how I spent most of my life. Yeah. um, Yeah. Most of my life in like the music business, specifically the heavy metal world. Like since I was 15, I've been writing about metal and, booking shows and touring with bands and working at record labels and uh, doing all, doing everything, but getting on stage, basically. Um, I've like toured the entire country. I've toured through most of Europe. Like I've, I've been a metal guy my whole life. Um, And I was working as the heavy metal editor at Vice when we organized. And even at that point, that was about 2015 uh, was when we started talking about organizing And at that point I was already involved in other, like just in my personal life, I was part of like the New York city anarchist scene. I was already used to going to long meetings and used to being mad about things and trying to change them. So when it became time to start going to union meetings, it's like, Oh, this is an easy fit. I'm used to (laughs) this. This makes sense to me politically and in terms of what I'm willing to sit through. So, um, yeah, I just ended up going to more and more union meetings and, putting more and more of my attention and time and passion into it as I learned more and got to know more organizers, learned more about labor law, bargained the contract, did all of these things that really just instill in you uh, a true understanding of the power of organizing and of collective bargaining and of sitting down across from your boss at a table and being like, no, 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 that's not good enough. Do better. Like that is just a transformative experience and going through all that. And then going to my day job and writing about, you know, black metal Nazis or like the newest like feminist death metal record or whatever it was I was writing about. It just kind of felt less. It is still important to me, but I've just drawn to labor stuff in a new way. The kind of the way I felt when I first started writing about metal when I was 15 and I was already freelancing at the time. So I just started pitching labor stuff and Teen Vogue uh, picked up the phone metaphorically because who calls our editors? That's terrifying. Um, they, they let me start writing some labor stuff uh, people started paying attention because in 2017, that was before Teen Vogue had become the vanguard of the revolution. Before. You know, This was very much pre-guillotine Vogue. So <laughs> yeah. it was kind of a novelty at that point. But I was able to build up some clips and make connections. And like, you know, when you're a freelancer, you got to get one good byline and then you can get away with anything. Getting a ball of Teen Vogue was kind of my one good labor byline. And then it kind of went from there. And uh, yeah, by the time I got laid off in 2019, I kind of morphed from like a heavy metal journalist who was interested in labor and politics to a labor and politics reporter who was really into heavy metal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that totally tracks. I mean, honestly, like something I was thinking about a lot when I was reading your book was that um, that same kind of uh, uh, what do you call it, like composition of what makes, uh, you know, a person's background as a writer uh it was going on a little bit in Tim Faust. He wrote a book about oh, yeah. um you know about uh health justice called Health Justice Now and about Medicare for all and everything. But he's such a fucking metal guy. I remember when I was reading yeah. it I was like, "Oh, there's metal in this." Like the book opens and it's <laughs> like a scream echoes through a hospital <laughs> and you're like <laughs> You know, he's, he's
0: talking about like insurance. I also, I also think Bolt throwing the acknowledgments. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing like writing about metal and writing about labor is not that different. Hmm. At least, okay, this is my theory that I'm the, the single person case study for this. But when I was writing about metal, uh, you know, as, as when I started out, I was 15, didn't know anything about the world. But as I got older and older, and, like, learned more, got more politically involved, I became really political in the way I covered metal. And I was always interested specifically in hearing about women and queer folks, people of color, like all the voices that were kind of being tamped down under the long-haired white guy with a guitar on stage, industrial complex. I was interested in everybody else. And when I started writing about labor, that was the same perspective I took. Like, okay, I know about, you know, the white guys like my dad who are, you know, work construction, work in steel mills, do all that. But like, what about everybody else? and that's it's the same thing trying to to trick people trying to trick npr readers into caring about black metal is not that dissimilar from trying to get just general the general public to care about a coal miner strike in alabama right totally this is why this is cool this is why it matters this is why it's interesting this is why you should give a shit that's my job to answer those questions
1: yeah and i mean labor is great because it has these heroic figures in it so like uh but sure we all know big bill haywood or whatever Um, we should yeah i guess we should i mean i mean there's this thing where it's like well everyone kind of knows mother jones kind of because what's going on (laughs) with her name and that publication that's named after her now but like it's weird because you've got libs and then you want to teach them who that actually was and stuff so the uh, the sort of just profiling you do in this book of various characters and how like badass they were essentially I think kind of works and is very I can hear the metal in the background when I read it and I'm like <laughs> you know listening to uh, uh or reading about it, like
0: Adame stole you know oh my god she was so tough she was like oh man not certainly not a girl boss she was like the person that would murder a girl boss. <laughs> yeah. like, they used to call her the Amazon of the coal pits. How sick is that? Like as a title for a woman in the 1930s, like, oh yeah, that Amazon, of the coal pits.
1: Yeah, hell yeah. That's sick.
0: It sounds like a wrestler.
1: Can you talk about yeah. her a little bit to entice our mm. listeners into reading your book? Oh, oh yeah. She's, she's really
0: one cool. of my favorites. Cause she's just well, no one's just anyone, right? But she she isn't a union leader or an organizer or really she she was she was just herself. She was Ida May stole. She was a a woman who was a coal miner in Ohio in the 1930s. She started when she was really young, she followed her dad down into the coal pits and as she got older and stronger, she became a really good coal miner. She liked her job. She had no interest in staying inside and doing what she termed baby work. She was not, you know, exactly <laughs> a domestic goddess. She was more of a well, she's more of an Amazon, I suppose. <laughs> and um, she ended up being the, she was really good at her job. She ended up becoming the part owner of a mine in Jewett, Ohio. And she just, you yeah, know, went to work, did her thing, got married, had some kids. But at that time, it was illegal for women to perform hard labor jobs, of which coal mining was one. Uh, the weaker sex was barred from that type of employment. And Ida Mae stole was she she knew that eventually it would become an issue but she was like ah oh, probably fine but then the federal mine inspector showed up pulled her out of the mines told her she had to go back to the kitchen and she was she threw a bunch of rotten eggs at him but that didn't work so she took him to court instead and she won in the 1930s this woman took like went to court and it was like basically like no like give me my job back this is stupid and because she was, she had that ownership stake in the mine, that's how she she prevailed and was able to go back to work. But she set this really incredible precedent of just showing how stupid it is to discriminate against someone based on their gender when it comes to employment. She was like, I'm, t-, she literally was like, I'm tougher than all these mine inspectors. Like, I have more <laughs> muscles than they do. Like, what are you talking about? So <laughs> yeah. I, I just really liked writing about her. She's just a normal person who the government tried to, to push around and tried to discriminate against. And she was like, no, like, this is not acceptable. And she won. And I think that's like, not only is it like inspiring, it's just kind of cool to know about that. Like, oh yeah, sometimes individual people can do cool shit and can win when they have the full force of the federal mine inspectors coming down their heads just by being stubborn and being right.
3: Can I ask a really specific uh, question about Mother Jones? Oh boy, I Actually. hope I know the answer. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, I don't know if there's a right answer to this, but um, I always found the and I believe you go over this in the book, the Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia, really interesting as, as well as the whole mine war, um, you know, series of of conflicts that uh, I believe federal troops on more than one occasion were sent to to put down mine uh, uprisings and insurrections, but in mm-hmm. West Virginia. Um, she was trying. Mother Jones was organizing there and she was not because she was a pacifist, but she was trying to talk them out of going up against the sheriff uh, violently, at least at that moment. And uh, they they did anyway. And don't want to spoil it. They did not uh, beat back the U.S. military, unfortunately. Um, do you think she was right about that?
2: Wow. I guess.
0: I mean, she, her whole reasoning was like, I don't want you guys to get slaughtered. Like you're not going to win this one. So don't expend your energy there. But they did anyway. And a whole lot of people got slaughtered. I mean, they made history. They, you know, people still remember them. Not enough people remember them. Not enough people remember that sacrifice. I don't know that they necessarily won. I mean, the mine wars were really brutal and they won some, they lost a lot. West Virginia is still not a very hospitable place for unions or workers or anyone to the left of Joe Manchin. (laughs) So yeah, that's an interesting question, right? Like, is it worth making history if you and hundreds of other people and your family suffer? Like what is the value of history? What is the value of making a statement or making an impact when your own life or your own material conditions do not get better? I don't know. That's interesting. Thing to think about. I'm not I'm like not a real historian, I'm just like some guy. But I don't know. I, I'm grateful for people that make those big decisions and make those big, terrifying leaps. But I kind of wish they didn't have to. I yeah. wish that they could have won without being slaughtered. I kind of wish maybe if they'd approached it a different way, tactically speaking, you know, things would have been a little different. But also, Mother Jones was not, I mean, she was a great organizer, a great orator, a great person with a couple of blind spots but like she was not a general she was <laughs> like she didn't necessarily know more than they did uh yeah, I don't know. There's something to chew on, I suppose.
3: You don't. have Yeah, to, I don't you. think there's a right or wrong answer. It's just an interesting, like yeah, you know, I, don't I like that. You don't have to rack
1: your brain trying to answer Anders' insane counterfactual. No,
0: <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> you know, to think about, though, this, right?
1: He does this with every guest, though, because he's obsessed with <laughs> counterfactuals and what would have happened if something happened differently, and we'll never know, Anders. We'll never know. I, know.
0: I mean, somebody could write the alternate history. People, there, there have yeah. been some cool books. I can't remember what's called. Someone wrote a cool book kind of like envisioning what would have happened if John Brown's raid had worked. Ooh, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. People can Google it, but yeah, in, ultimate histories are interesting. Maybe there's time somebody, who is not me, I'm not, creative enough writes one of, of Mother Jones and the Battle of Blair Mountain.
1: Okay. Yeah, cool. Will you hear that, sci-fi writers out there listening yeah. to the show?
0: <laughs> Calling yeah. on labor nerds who also know how to write fiction.
1: <laughs> Fire Off up your you go. fan fiction machine. <laughs> Uh,
0: rev up your
1: Tumblr account? I don't know what you do that on, Live Journal. I
3: don't know. Um, Oh,
0: no, Matt, no, fiction writers are like the writers people respect. No one knows what to do with people like me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I have a, another question. This is not a, a counterfactual. This is a, a I think will be an easily answerable one, but uh, mentioning like uh, the way people conceive of the labor movement in America and especially like post-war, right? A lot of people think of that as kind of the high point for unionism in the United States, because he had a quote unquote uh, labor peace with, uh, you know, pretty conservative figures like George Meany in charge of the AFL-CIO. What are some of the like the the underbelly of that, the the things we don't hear about that era uh, when unions supposedly had everything figured out? Um, What was kind of some of the stories um, there that suggest a, a different way?
0: You mean like the the thirties, the forties, like oh, what, uh, which
3: post-war? war? Oh, sorry, World War II. After World War II, and you know, <laughs> okay. you got like the fifties, and the strength of like all these uh, unions, and you know, the mythology of like you were talking about, like the white guys in hard hats. But there's a lot of other stuff going on too. Yeah,
0: I mean the 50, I mean, I'm trying to think of like specifically the fifties. Whatever, in terms of the sixties at least. I mean, that's when we saw so much organizing with the farm workers. Yeah. And all these massive strikes and all these mass these hunger strikes that there's there might have been labor peace among, you know, some of the big guys, the big established unions in the government, but that doesn't cover everybody. Right. You know, even the NLRA, like National Labor Relations Act of nineteen thirty-five, doesn't cover agricultural workers, domestic workers. Like that's why the folks in California specifically, like they were organizing to try and, you know, build a union and claw some, back some of those rights that they, well, had actually never been offered.
3: Uh, I think the United Farm Workers is a really interesting example because that, like, was during that era, and, you know, it was kind of, like, outside the ex- established norms for what unions are supposed to be doing at that time, so. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, the, 60, in the 60s and the 70s, the 70s were kind of one of the more interesting eras, I think. So I think it was, like, unions, there's a lot going on with unions, of course, but there's a lot of organizing happening kind of in a like peripherally to the labor movement that still involved workers and still involved, um, involved labor, but wasn't necessarily getting the the auto worker style headlines, right? Because the seventies were when we saw this explosion in prisoners organizing inside the walls before the 1970 decision that screwed that all over. So we saw the disability rights movement really coming to the force. So when we saw the sex workers rights movement really getting off the ground. Of course, there's the Black Power Movement, Brown Power Movement. I mean, the Rebellion at Attica oh. was sort of the, like that, that happened in what was like 1971? So the year before a strike was organized in the metal shop at that prison by uh, by a, a young lord, by I think Che Nieves, who kind of set that, set that stage a little bit and started organizing, started building connections that would later lead to this massive revolt so yeah this i think there's a lot of people smarter than me and more well-versed in labor history than me that could give you a very different answer about the si- the 70s but what i was drawn to in that particular period was all these types of different marginalized workers and marginalized people that were finding ways to organize and fight that intersected with labor but wasn't necessarily embraced by labor wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. put yeah. in the labor box but was still very much part of labor history
1: yeah, that's, uh, that's a that's it's a really good point. Um, that kind of reminds me of the uh, you know about inter- I didn't I didn't get to your chapter on sex workers. So you might have talked about this, but uh, International Whores Day uh, started in the seventies, right? The with a bunch of sex workers in France uh, protesting against cops, <laughs> yeah. right? So all that sort of stuff that is like like you said, like adjacent to labor, but. Um, you know, not traditionally included sort of like comes and connects in and goes, look, look, this is all part of the same fucking front, right? Yeah.
0: It's part of labor history. It just hasn't necessarily been labeled as such or embraced by the broader movement or the establishment or the government, because a lot of folks who have done really important labor organizing, their work is criminalized or their existence is criminalized or they are kept in cages. I mean, yeah, there's like a labor
1: establishment within labor kind of,
0: yeah, they really don't like when you yeah. tell them that we should kick out the cops. I keep trying, but they just don't like it very much.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well.
0: It's a whole other thing, I guess. Maybe maybe, in a, maybe in my next book. I still have to figure that out. <laughs>
1: um, well, I don't want to keep you around too long. I have one final very important question, though. So, you know, please, you want to nail this one. Otherwise, uh, you'll look. The fans will be very disappointed. Uh <laughs> My question is, uh, what music should we listen to right now? What's good? What's good in metal? Good oh, guitar? thank God. <laughs> I know. I was, it was a joke question. Uh, <laughs> a misleading oh, buildup.
0: Uh, oh, man. I've been I've been bad at listening to music, actually. But there's a new Cloud Rat record that's coming out that is so sick. Uh, there's a new Acephalics record coming out, also so sick. <laughs> going back into like metal english uh there's a new single from this band emasculator that's like a all all women death metal brutal death metal band that i'm really excited about. i'm gonna keep an eye on them that's awesome there's a <laughs> yeah there's a that's band a chat name. pile who are like i don't like noise rock but somehow these guys make me like noise rock okay they're they're a whole thing they're they're interesting they're one of those bands that i i listen to against my will because a friend who has bad taste is like, no, listen to this. <laughs> Ugh, but they're really good. And um, yeah, Cloud Rat's cut yeah, the Cloud Rat I can't recommend highly enough. Um total, totally not metal, but Lee Baines and the Glorifiers has a really great record that's like more southern rock and roll, like gospel punk. He's really into labor and rights. He wrote some poems for the New Yorker about like working class Alabama life. That's really cool. Cool. It doesn't have, it doesn't have blast beats, but it is dope. Um, Yeah. That's (laughs) I think I can talk about that stuff for, for a million years. But at the very least, if you're listening to this, look up cloud rat and look up the glory fires. And you'll probably like at least one of them, if not both.
1: I've never heard either. So I'm excited to check that out. Cause uh, you music writing people always know better stuff than us. (laughs) Stagnating middle thirties guys who don't know how to find music anymore. um
0: <laughs> I'm in the same boat. I'm yeah, mid thirty. <laughs> I luckily I'm still on a bunch of mailing lists for like record labels and whatnot. They're like, here's what we're doing. I'm, oh, thank God. Mm. Yes, I will listen to this eventually. Yeah, but I don't spend as much time digging as I used to, but I'm, I'm trying to start. Trying to get back into. It. I miss writing about music. i miss
1: listening to music. I wish they still made like those comps that you would get. You know, like uh... they're
0: doing i just got we're all about the same age do you remember those now compilations like now now
3: that's why i love music yeah yeah, yeah. they're
0: still doing them Wait, did you really? know that really? <laughs> i just got a press release about now like 93 or something it? dua lipa's on it it's fucking oh, wow. insane so they keep <laughs> them current man
1: i remember yeah. when they were on like nine and i was like this is too much <laughs>
0: Yeah, I remember getting those for Christmas when I was a kid, like, because Walmart was the only store that had music near us, so I would get those, and then I eventually convinced my dad to start Uh buying me, like, deicide records, but yeah now is a big cornerstone of my early music listening
1: okay cool well i'll check one of those out too i have not heard them, <laughs> <do them.
0: laughs> maybe not those. i think you're probably <laughs> past that rubicon <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: okay uh thank you for joining
1: us uh please plug and let our listeners know where they can find you and read your stuff and all that sort of stuff
0: oh yeah i'm aggressively online at twitter at grim kim my old college radio dj name uh I made an Instagram that people can look at, just Kim Kelly Writer. You can't find my personal one because you guys have not earned that. Mm. And, um, I've got a Patreon Patreon, Patreon thingy. I write a lot. I, I started freelancing again. I do stuff for Teen Vogue and I wrote a book and <laughs> I'm gonna be on a book tour for like ever. So I might be coming to your city, you never know. And uh yeah, I would say to Google me, but I've been writing so long there's probably some real weird shit there. So probably just go for Twitter instead.
1: Google me instead. There's nothing weird if you Google me. <laughs> um All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh yeah, I think that's good. I think we did it.
0: We did it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, thank you.
3: I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Just take
1: that. The heinous
3: attack. Ah, good. Take the word yesterday, because it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday is a hard word for me.
2: (laughs) Former President Donald Trump addressing the word yesterday. (laughs) He does not believe in yesterday.
1: They released this in the J6 committee yesterday. It's bloopers, which, like, what the fuck is going on in this country? That's part of it.
2: Every committee needs bloopers, in my opinion. <laughs> they, <laughs> I've always said that. <laughs>
1: they released the bloopers from, I guess this is kind of relevant, because it's when they made him, like, uh, say, hey, it's bad that you stormed the Capitol. If you watch the long version, it's a lot of him going, like, um... They're making the teleprompter will say like the election is over, and he'll go like I don't want to say that though, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which it does kind of show like motive. Like this is a pertinent to the court case, I guess, but like then the, a lot of the other parts are just him going like yesterday's a hard word for me, which is weird because he just said it like he didn't fuck up the word. Yeah,
2: and then you have the final version of the telecast where he's like. The day before today was heinous in its own way.
1: <laughs> and it's like, I don't know if he always has this many outtakes or if it was that he was like pissed off because all the stuff was happening. So that kind of tells you something about what was going well, on. It sounds like day. he
3: didn't even, he wanted to dance around as much as possible addressing yeah. the event of January 6th. So he didn't even want to acknowledge the time that it happened relative to when he was. Yeah. Anyways, um,
1: <laughs> we just inserted that right in there, but that was before that was our interview with Kim Kelly, uh, and that's uh, that was great. And uh, yeah, th- now the show's yeah. over, and that little Trump snippet was just just a treat. Yesterday, just for fun. It's a hard word for me. I'm exhausted. I'm melting. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Let's do plugs.
2: Yes.
3: Anyway. up. Uh, at Anders Lee on Twitter, Dursley on Instagram. If you are in New York City or the New York Tri-State area region, uh please check out Botanical Comedy, which is a show I'm putting on at Misfit Cava uh, next weekend on Saturday, July 30th at 7 p.m. That's in Bushwick, Misfit Cava. There's going to be a lot of great comics on the show. Friend of our show, David Twighty, will be doing it so, as, well as my buddy Jaffer Khan from Redacted Tonight, we're also going to have Sahib Singh, a uh, huge, hilarious TikTok star, and uh, Wendy Steiner, Samantha Ruddy. Uh, it's going to be a great show. So, please make it on out. And I'll put the uh, event right in the, in the show notes.
2: Cool. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Patak Test Kitchen. That's P T A K Test Kitchen. I've also been putting stand up clips on TikTok. So, maybe I'll be making TikToks more. Who knows with me? Um, Somebody reached out to me about a strike fund for a Starbucks in Augusta. Georgia? um, I believe it's Maine, but I haven't clicked yet, and I'm glad you asked me. Um, But I don't have the link right now, and it's just in Augusta. And I'm going to put that link in this chat.
1: We'll put okay. it in the show notes, um yeah,
2: ask yourself, does it matter where it is, or do we just want them all to be unionized, huh?
1: Be nice to know listeners of our show Fuck are off connected to
2: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> right
1: one next of to Starbucks um no, it's not next to Lawrence. That's in Kansas. <laughs> this is in Georgia. uh, but yeah, kick in a few shekels. Who are your guys? I'm doing Marin now, but uh, yeah. Give them money because they're trying to fight Howard, and it's important to destroy Hower. Okay, I'm, we have to end. I, it's it's so hot in here.
2: It was Augusta, Georgia.
1: Oh, I don't have any fucking fl- plugs. I don't think. I don't know. Keep an eye on me. I'll start doing shit again soon.
2: Stay by the air conditioner. Oh yeah, it's finished. It's
1: roasted. It's roasted.